If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 1231.24. Excludes tax. Must update rewards. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Asia has long enthralled people in the West, with explorers and military expeditions setting out in search of wealth, wisdom and the chance to explore what they saw as a strange new world. Christopher Harding is the author of a new book on this subject, The Light of Asia, and he spoke to Matt Elton about this enduring fascination with India, China and Japan, and the ways in which it shaped the relationship between East and West into the 21st century. So Chris, your new book is called The Light of Asia, and we'll get on to some of the meanings behind that title in a bit. But before we do, I wanted to start by asking you what it is you're exploring in the book and what the sort of geographical and chronological range of it is, I suppose. Yeah, it's a good question. I think in retrospect, it's insanely ambitious, probably. We start around the 6th century BCE and we go all the way through to the early 21st. And by Asia, really, I'm focusing on India, China and Japan. Those three civilizations have been of such interest to people across much of that span, not the entirety of it, but much of it. So really, those three countries primarily. And it's that interest specifically that you're looking at across that span, isn't it? Yes. So the subtitle is Western Fascination with the East. So it's really exploring what the nature of fascination has been across that long span. And it's meant all sorts of different things across that time, which we can get into, I hope. 
So we should start by rewinding to the very earliest encounters. What do we know about the first encounters between the West and Asia and the form that it took, I suppose? So I think early on, if we're thinking about, say, the 5th century BCE, there was nothing at all known about China or Japan. It was really India. And I think probably the really important thing to say at the beginning is that the Persian Empire was this incredibly important conduit for information between the West, using that phrase, I suppose, quite loosely, and India. So the Persian Empire at this point really stretches from the borders of the Greek-speaking world all the way through into northwest India. And we think maybe the first known Westerner to actually go to India would have been someone called Silax or Silax of Cariander. And in the early 5th century BCE, he was asked, he was a kind of explorer, he was asked by the Persian emperor to sail down the Indus River, basically to see where it went. And we think he left, it's now been lost, but he left potentially the first ever account for Westerners of India. And he's quite an interesting guy. He really sets, I think, the tone for certainly these early centuries of Western interest in India, because he pictures the place as involving both fabulous strangeness and fabulous wealth, I suppose. So he sends back odd reports, and they kind of survive in fragments. As I say, we've lost his account in its entirety. But of people, for example, who have one leg, and on the end of that one leg is an enormous foot, so that they can lie back in noon, and they can use their enormous foot as a kind of umbrella to shade themselves. And others have these huge ears which wrap around their bodies to kind of, you know, provide a sort of protection for them. So really a place of, of fabulous strangeness, and at the same time fabulous wealth, which really, as you can imagine, garners Western interest really from the get-go. And those are themes that we'll pick back up on as we go through this conversation. Before we do, I think perhaps one of the people associated with this early story that people might be familiar with is Alexander the Great. What do we know about his involvement in this kind of connection? So yeah, so Alexander the Great, we're into what the fourth century BCE, his armies make it all the way into the northwest of India. That much we do know. Precisely what happens next is kind of hard to know for sure because there was so much romanticizing that went on of what he did. We know that he got into India. He was hoping, because at this point, the understanding of the world that he had was that India would be the furthest east you could go before you got to what they thought about as being a great river Oceanus, which sort of flowed all around the edge of the world. So he hoped he was going to the farthest extent of the world. When he got there, it seems that his armies realised that India was much bigger than was expected. The opposition was perhaps more serious. We think that he encountered war elephants, which must have been terrifying. People who had no idea what elephants were, the size of those creatures, the stink of them, the sound of their trumpeting calls, and they thought, actually things have been relatively easy up to this point. You know, we've been kind of rampaging across the Eastern known world, but now it looks a little bit harder. And so for whatever reason, his armies turned back. But one of the things I think that stayed with them, and it's a theme that on and off runs through the book, is the sense that India is a place not just of strangeness and of wealth, but also of spiritual depths of a kind. So one of the things we think we know about Alexander is that he had a great entourage with him, not just warriors, but people who were you know, philosophers, what we would now call probably ethnographers as well. And they met the so-called naked philosophers or gymnosophists. So these Indian holy men living away far from towns and cities who got into a kind of philosophical conversation with Alexander and, and people in his entourage, big questions of life and death. And also one of them, apparently, we don't know whether this really happened or not, but chiding Alexander for his war making and his destruction, saying, you know, when you've seized all this territory and all this wealth, 
where are you going to take it? You know, all men are mortal after all. So that really early theme of, of, as it were, the East being a place of wisdom and deep philosophical questioning, I think it goes all the way back to Alexander. And the sort of the three threads we've already set up, so wisdom, wealth, and strangeness, I suppose, were these the factors that pulled people from the West to Asia as we head into the early part of the medieval period? I think so, yes. So wealth in all sorts of ways, jewels, emeralds, sapphires were said to flow through the rivers in India. There were stories of gold digging ants, so ants almost the size of dogs or foxes who supposedly would dig up the earth and dig up gold dust with it. And Indians would race into the area on the back of camels, pick up this sort of dusty soil and then race away again being chased by ants. So there's a kind of a fantasy of India being quite wealthy, but also the reality of spices like pepper, for example, which all the way back at least to the Roman Empire, people in Europe were big fans of. So that wealth in spices was part of the atmosphere. And medieval Europeans, all sorts of different spices for cuisine, for medicine, for religious services as well. Asia was quite important to them. And for some, depending on how they read Genesis in the Bible, for some they expected that paradise was located in the east. And some people wondered whether spices maybe grew on trees in the Garden of Eden and then kind of flowed outwards from there on these rivers. So a sense of, of wealth, but also a kind of spiritual preciousness as well that kept, I think, European interest in Asia. You write in the book that Europeans at the dawn of the 1500s drew most of what little they knew about China and Japan from their reading of Marco Polo. How important was he as a figure when he was doing his exploration and his merchant work in the 13th and 14th centuries? I think he is a really important figure because whereas in the, for example, the ancient Roman period, the Roman Empire, they were able to trade with India over the sea and over land. After the rise of Islam, some of these powerful Islamic empires make it much harder for Europeans to go to Asia in person. And so that knowledge about Asia is very, very poor for quite a few centuries. Briefly, the Mongol Empire makes it possible to have a land route via the Crimea and Central Asia. And this is the one that Marco Polo takes, we think, in the late 13th century. And I think he's tremendously important because he, we think, was in Asia for 20, 25 years, mainly China, also travelled into India, parts of Southeast Asia, wrote about it was able to say so much about China, paint a picture of a, an advanced civilization with paper money, amazing cities, a very wealthy kind of upper class, and just an incredibly developed civilization to the extent that people on his deathbed surrounding him said, look, you know all this is not true. You know you've made it up. You need to repent it now before you die. They just didn't believe that he could have gone there and he could have garnered all this incredible information about a non-Christian civilization that appeared to be far in advance of much of Europe. And yet, now we think he did go. Now we think much of what he said is true. And people who believed him in the centuries after his death were all the more interested in China. And also, I think, all the more interested in Japan. Because although Marco Polo didn't go to Japan, he'd heard about it. And he said it was a place of extraordinary gold. He painted this amazing picture of homes or temples where almost every surface and almost every fitting was kind of solid gold. And so, of course, Europeans, people like Christopher Columbus in particular, when he sailed off, really hoped that he was going to get to Japan and China. In Columbus's case, in what, the early 1490s, he thought he had got to Japan off the coast. We think it was probably Cuba instead. But certainly Marco Polo then, by painting this picture of advanced civilizations, and yes, again, very, very wealthy ones, for Europeans made it all the more important to try to get out there if they could. 
We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I wanted to talk a bit more about faith, both as a factor in drawing people to Asia and also in terms of the reception they got when they arrived. What else should we say about this story as we head through the medieval period? Yeah, so it's funny when you get Christian Europe at its peak of self-confidence, and I think that stretches into the early period of Portuguese and Spanish empires in the 1500s and the early 1600s, I don't think Europeans expected that they would find much by way of wisdom in Asia. More, I think they were interested in spectacle. So there's a, an English traveller, a fascinating guy called Tom Corriott in the early 1600s, who walks most of the way to India. His nickname is the Leg Stretcher. It's wonderful. And he writes to his mother. He's very sweet. He writes to his mother from India and says, look, I'm looking forward to going to the Ganges. I've heard this, this festival where everyone bathes there and they throw, I think he says something like, massy great lumps and wedges of gold into the river. So it's more kind of heathen spectacle. And Europeans are fascinated by Hindu temples where there are people with elephants head, you know, the god Ganesha and other deities, which to European eyes just look so deliciously devilish and disgusting that it's kind of tourism. It's interesting. And instead, what they really want to do, and this is particularly true, I think, of the Jesuit missionaries out in India, who really use Portuguese ships as a kind of global taxi service. They're out in places like India, China and Japan from the late 1500s onwards. They're really not trying to pick up any particular religious wisdom there, but they realise that they need to understand what people believe. They need to speak the languages if they're going to have any hope of converting people. What they want to try and do, I think, is, most of them anyway, convert the upper echelons of society in the hope of a kind of trickle-down effect for Christianity. And so they learn Sanskrit, other Indian languages, they learn Chinese, they learn Japanese. And in the course of doing that, what's fascinating is they realise that these places are a lot deeper in terms of their religious and philosophical wisdom than they'd expected. They generally thought that places in the world which don't have a Christian revelation will be at best kind of ancient Roman level pagan sophistication. 
but they're really quite impressed. And some of the information that they then send back to Europe about these places, I think in particular China early on, starts to garner the interest of Europeans. And in later centuries, when people do have their doubts about Christianity, they find that there is much deeper wisdom available to them in Asia than they might have expected. You mentioned there the 16th and 17th century traveller Thomas Coriat. Are there other figures from this period who are equally, I suppose, unknown now? Because I think people might not have heard of Coriat. Are there other people who we should be factoring into this story who don't get the recognition they deserve? So yeah, I think Tom Corrett's a good one. There are a handful of other travellers. I think probably I would put a word in for some of the early Jesuit missionaries who made cultural contact on a level that is just light years away from some of those early rumours of strange creatures in India, you know, back in the period of ancient Greece. So a couple of names briefly to give you. One would be in China, Matteo Ricci. He realised that he wouldn't be taken seriously unless he presented himself as a Chinese intellectual, one of the literati. So he gave himself a Chinese name, he learned Chinese, he dressed up in Mandarin robes, and he really tried to engage with what he thought was the wisdom of Confucius. He was very impressed, actually. He would compare Confucius with ancient Greek and Roman philosophers. And in doing so, he managed actually to get himself in with the Chinese court around the emperor. In India, Roberto de Nobili did something similar with Brahmins, India's priestly caste. So he would dress as a Brahmin, very simply eat a vegetarian diet, maintain ritual purity. He learned Sanskrit and he tried to convince people there that Jesus Christ was a kind of Indian style guru whom they should take very seriously. And I think to get to that depth of understanding and then to communicate that back to Europe was, I think, an incredibly important service. Because when you think about Europe then, probably from the mid-1700s onwards, Europeans aren't just interested in whether Asia might become Christian, but they're interested in whether Asia has something to teach Europe. And that's a brand new phase, I think. And I'd like to talk more about this idea, because we've alluded it to a couple of times, of the idea of Asia being seen as offering an alternative to how the world was viewed and how you could make sense of the world. Are there particular ways or particular figures who brought these ideas into Europe or made them popular, I suppose? I think there are. I think a classic example of this would probably be Voltaire in the second half of the 1700s. So one of the themes of the book, I think, all the way through is that Western interest in Asia is almost always quite self-referential. How does Asia help us understand ourselves or critique our own societies? So to come back to Voltaire in a second, but an example from the ancient era would be someone like Cicero. He had heard of this custom of sati in India, where a widow would throw herself on the burning funeral pyre of her husband. And he wasn't so much interested in that as an aspect of Indian culture as proof, as he said, that Roman women didn't show that kind of fidelity to their men. You know, where is that kind of commitment to their husband on the part of Roman women? So it's often quite self-referential in that way. And when it comes to Voltaire, I think that's still true in the second half of the 1700s. He's interested in particular in China. So he's read reports of China from the Jesuits. They're generally quite laudatory reports because the Jesuits wanted to promote China back in Europe as a place that was sophisticated and that was ready for Christianity. And so the idea or the image of China that Voltaire had, and which he very influentially put about in Europe in his writings, was a place where they didn't need priests, they didn't need the church, you know, in the way that the Catholic church was considered by Voltaire to be pretty oppressive in all sorts of ways. Instead, they had a more direct understanding of God. They were natural scientists. They were interested in the stars. 
They were run not on the basis of kind of family or clerical privilege, but by a class of intellectuals, a little bit like Voltaire, I'm sure he was thinking, who were trained in a civil service, selected on the basis of, of merit. So you can see in all sorts of ways for him, China was imagined as the kind of perfect future Europe. And the fact that it had survived over so many centuries as a successful society for him was really important because a lot of Europeans would say, you know, you want this kind of utopia, as someone like Voltaire might describe it, but it can't be done. But he'd say, no, look, in China, they've managed it. And we can use that as a concrete example for how we might reform Europe. I'm interested in this idea that the Western view of Asia was self-referential, as you've said there. Did that shape how Western people were viewed in Asia it's a really good question. I think, yes. I mean, if we move ourselves into the 19th century, you get intellectuals in Asia who are quite keen, I think, to play with that sense of kind of self-referential Europeans. So if you think, for example, about Japan in the late 19th century, Japanese intellectuals were really conscious in the second half of that century of Europe's technological advantage and its military advantage. And Japan was rapidly trying to modernise from the 1860s onwards. But there were some Japanese intellectuals who said, well, look, we're getting Western technology, weapons, the sciences, democratic forms, all these things are coming in. There's a kind of cultural tidal wave on its way into Japan. What is it that we can do to balance that out and maybe even give something back to the West or push back against this very heavy cultural influence. And what they alighted upon was the idea that Western success in all these areas has been, I suppose, bought at the cost of the Western soul, that they understand nature, they can manipulate nature through the natural sciences, but they don't have that deep access to nature that perhaps some of Japan's Buddhist sects offer, or its poetry, you know, everyone's heard of, of haiku, it suggests a connection with nature, maybe that's deeper than Europeans now have. And so they thought, okay, if that's the case, then maybe we can promote, and some of them actively do this, something like Zen Buddhism to Westerners as a way of gaining direct access via nature to a kind of deeper reality beyond. And some people from Japan, also similar traditions from India, tour around the United States, parts of Britain, teaching meditation, or in the case of someone like Swami Vivekananda from India, teaching yoga as a way of saying to Westerners, actually, yes, Asia does have something to offer you. If your primary interest in Asia is what can it do for us, which it generally is on the part of many Westerners, then here's an example. So you get Indian-Japanese cultural nationalism basically taking advantage of this and selling Asia as a place of deep spiritual wisdom. And I think to an extent that's still with us today, isn't it? And this idea of a spiritual exchange is something we'll pick up when we head into the 20th century. Before we do, one of the case studies you feature in the book is that of Calcutta at the end of the 18th and into the 19th century. What does that case study tell us, do you think? I think Calcutta is really important because it becomes a real conduit for information about India, heading back to Europe. So Calcutta in this period from the late 18th century into the early 19th is sort of the hub of British activity, English and then British activity in India. And because the East India Company from the late 18th century is aspiring to control parts of India, including collecting land revenue, including administering justice, British colonial officials conclude that they need to understand Indian laws, culture, languages, not necessarily out of the kind of altruistic intellectual interest, but because it's more effective to control the population if you understand them in that way. And that is a huge push to learning Indian languages, particularly Sanskrit. 
And so you get a first generation of people who are either colonial officials or they're working out there for the colonial authorities who collect information about Indian texts. And a good example, I think, with this of this would be William Jones, one of the most famous scholars of India in this period. He goes out there as a judge for the Supreme Court and he learns Sanskrit for his, as it were, for his day job. But he's also a poet and he's also a great romantic. And what he finds in his explorations of Indian wisdom is as far as he's concerned, really quite elevated stuff. And so he writes this beautiful poetry based on some of the Indian texts that he's discovered, sends them back to Europe. And before you know it, you've got people like Ludwig van Beethoven, you've got Goethe and other Europeans who absolutely love this stuff. And Beethoven makes notes on some of Jones's poetry for his diary. The Bhagavad Gita, a very famous Indian text, is translated into English by an official of the East India Company. And that starts to circulate in Europe. And there's this impression that actually, rather than being interested in China, India is really where it's at. And Europeans fall in love for a while, at least, with this, what they think is really deep Indian wisdom. And so there's this interesting mixture, I think, of colonialism on the one hand, which is much more about wealth and control and power. And on the other, a sense that there's something of deep value in India, which Europeans really ought to be paying attention to. And I'm interested in this idea of how the political or how the sort of international politics of the situation shaped how cultural influence ebbed and flowed. For instance, the opium wars between China and the West that happened during the sort of the 19th century. Did episodes like that affect the political and I suppose the cultural balance between these two powers? I think it did. So in general, we can think about the 18th century as a kind of boom for China in Europe. So we talked about Voltaire, other people are interested in, of course, tea drinking as is really peaking in the 18th century. People love Chinese wall hangings. Some people like to dress up in Mandarin robes. There's an example of someone who actually adopted a Chinese child for a while. So there's this incredible China boom in the 18th century. Into the 19th, it's much more moving towards India. And I think there are a few reasons for that, but a couple in particular. One is that China was popular amongst Europeans in the 18th century, partly because it seemed to be a society that had been stable for many centuries, in stark contrast to Europe, you know, with all these religious wars and upheavals. So stability was really a value. I think once Europe itself is stabilised, instead, some people, and you can see it in German romantic philosophers of the late 1700s, instead of stability, they actually start to value purity and energy and dynamism. And India seems to offer that, I think, more. So there's a, a German philosopher at the end of the 1700s, Herder, who describes China as an embalmed mummy wrapped in silk and painted with hieroglyphics. As in, that isn't the kind of society that we really want to, you know, emulate anymore. Much more interested in India. So there's a cultural shift. Politically, though, I think, as you say, it's quite important because the more popular that things like tea became and other Chinese goods, the more that European merchants were under pressure to get trading access to China. Famously, the Chinese emperor wasn't particularly interested in that. He sends back a, a British trading mission in the 1790s saying, basically, we're not interested in your trinkets. We have nothing to learn from you. You have nothing that we want. And that attitude filters all the way down and it's harder for European merchants to gain the kind of access they want. That turns people, I think, against China, certainly some of the merchants. And then once you have the journeying of opium from India into China in these vast, vast quantities. In the period that we're talking about, we think there's enough opium going into China to sustain a million opium habits. 
So it's an extraordinary figure. And you start to get an image of Chinese people as a result, as being opium addicts, as being kind of glory days away in the past. You start to get people, uh, I think, into the 19th, early 20th centuries, worried about migration, you know, the so-called yellow peril, etc. In general, politics starts to turn people against China. And it's amazing to compare the high view of China in the 18th century with some of the low and distinctly racist views that you find in the, what, mid-late 19th. And that's partly, as I say, about culture and definitely partly about politics. Thank you. I wanted to delve into the title of the book, which is something I sort of alluded to at the start, because The Light of Asia as a title has quite a long history, doesn't it? Yes, it does. So we've borrowed stroke stolen it from Edwin Arnold, <laughs> who was a 19th century British journalist, worked for the Telegraph for a while. He wrote a very influential book on the life of the Buddha. I think he's actually quite a good example of this self-referential theme, you know, that, that runs through the book. So he wrote The Light of Asia in 1879, published it in 1879. And if you think about the second half of the 19th century, the kind of intellectual climate, you've had Darwin has come out with these two books, both on evolution in general, and in particular, what evolution means, or people are starting to speculate about what evolution might mean for where human beings come from. A lot of Christians, I think we can overdo the crisis of faith thing on the back of Darwin, but a lot of Christians struggled, even if they could accept the idea that human beings had emerged via evolution. You know, you can't take Genesis literally. That was a centuries old idea that you can't read Genesis literally. Even if you can accept that, as many Christians could, still the amount of violence and waste of life and sheer cruelty that the theory of evolution suggested made them think, well, even if God does work in that way, God must be a good deal more cruel or at least a good deal stranger than we perhaps can accept. And off the back of that and various biblical scholarship developments as well, the ageing of the earth was another thing going on, I think, in this period that made people think, well, actually, how are we supposed to engage with the Bible and how are we supposed to understand Christian teaching? All that was in the air. And along comes Edwin Arnold combining a real interest in India. He understood Sanskrit and he'd been in India for a while with a kind of journalist's instinct for what people want. And so The Light of Asia, this long poem about the life of the historical Buddha, really presents the historical Buddha as a kind of Victorian gentleman. So he is interested in truth. He goes out and experiments with different ideas and practices. He's a kind of spiritual proto-scientist. He loves his family. He treats them really well. He's filled with compassion for the natural world and for other people. And Edwin Arnold presents him like that, and he kind of ignores some of the more difficult aspects of Buddhism. What's funny is that book is so popular, it's up there with Huckleberry Finn in terms of sales, that you have all these Christian rebuttals against the light of Asia. And it really shows you the anxieties. It's hard to believe now that the Victorian era might have been the beginning of the Buddhist conversion of the West. So some of these Christian critics say, you know, this is terrifying. If you go to India and you see how people live, or you accept that for some people Buddhism is atheistic, or for others they believe that you could be reincarnated as a worm in the next life, Edwin Arnold's presentation just seems to be hopelessly optimistic and hopelessly romanticised. But it's wonderful to explore that book and some of the reaction against it as a way of understanding these big religious debates that were going on in Europe in that second half of the century. It's just a, another good example, I think, of how Asia, European attitudes and Western attitudes towards Asia, gives us this wonderful window into the Western soul in a particular period. And Arnold and the reaction to him are brilliantly illustrative, I think, of that. Does the success of Arnold's book help explain why Buddhism 
was so popular in the West rather than some other faiths or some other religions? In part, it does, yes. I think, though, what really happens from the late 19th century into the 20th is an interest on the part, we were saying a moment ago, of these what you might call cultural nationalists in Japan and India of, as it were, pitching certain versions of their religious traditions to Westerners whose various kind of spiritual difficulties they really understood quite well. So if you go to Japan now, there are all these different Buddhist sects. Zen Buddhism is only one or, or two of a, of a great many more. And it's not even the most popular, but Westerners really picked up on Zen Buddhism in particular because it seemed to them, the version that they understood anyway, to have almost nothing by way of doctrine, nothing you had to sign up to, nothing you had to believe. There wasn't a priestly class who were going to kind of push you around. There wasn't regular attendance at a church service. People didn't really want that either. Instead, it seemed to offer a practice which would give you direct access to reality, or it would give you a kind of spiritual experience. And yoga, I think, was very similar. So I think you've got the particular popularity of something like Zen Buddhism, which peaks in probably the middle decades, I think, of the, of the 20th century, really because of the particular difficulties people have with Christianity and with authority and with their view of the world. One thing Buddhism is really good at, as it's pitched in the West by various people, perhaps including Edwin Arnold, actually, is its compatibility with science. So they would say, actually, in Buddhism, what it really is, is a kind of science of the mind. It can teach you about how your mind is working, how you can deal with anxiety, how you can deal with low moods, how you can essentially strengthen yourself as an individual. And that was, I think, very much in line with the mood of the late 19th century and much of the 20th, where people didn't really want to be pushed around by clerics. They, they wanted to have more of a sense of individualism and autonomy. And Buddhism, as it was in the West for that period, much of that period, really promised to shore up the individual, deal with your anxieties, help to make you more effective, as it were, in the world, which is why some of the, you know, the rhetoric around the wellness movement, I think now, is so interesting, because it really is a kind of 19th century ideal, how to succeed. It's a kind of self-help, which I think is exactly how Arnold pitched it way back in the 19th century. One of the lines that struck me in your book is, you say, the poetry and philosophy of India has the potential not just to lift Westerners up, but to keep Indians down. Are there darker aspects of this fascination that we've not talked about that we should? Yes. Yes, I, I think there are. So what I meant by that suggestion was, and if we're thinking again about the late 18th into the 19th centuries, because Europeans became so keen to find in India and then in Japan this sort of deep contemplative wisdom, there was a real danger of portraying Indians generally, and people were thinking in quite a racialized way in this era, as contemplative, as passive, and as not really having the kind of manly vigour that in other corners of European culture was really celebrated. So there's a danger of imagining India in that way. And there's a political element to that because when the East India Company was, you know, gaining ever more territory in India across the latter part of the 18th and the early 19th centuries, one of the things they said was that, you know, here you have this wonderful Indian civilization, which for a couple of centuries has been under the thumb of the Mughal Empire, which is an Islamic empire in India. Along come the English, later the British. We are, at least to some extent, liberating these people from the clutches of that empire, and we're going to, in time, 
give them something better. So it, it fitted with a political narrative to say that you have a very contemplative, passive Indian society, which has been kept down and the hardy British are coming along to save it. You see something similar in Japan because a lot of Europeans early on who go to Japan in the late 19th century, they see it as a kind of almost Garden of Eden type place, doesn't yet have industry, horrible smoky cities, etc. And they see the Japanese as, they use words like kindly, easygoing, sweet, slightly small. One person says that it reminds him of a kind of world of elves. All these kind of fantasies about Japan, the people, the natural landscape. Again, it's of course very self-referential and it's very self-serving. And some Japanese critics start to say, thinking really about the early 20th century, they say, you talk about the spiritual wisdom of Japan, that isn't how we imagine ourselves in the modern world, because we know that if we imagine ourselves in that way, we're going to end up like India under the colonial thumb. Instead, we want to think about ourselves. And if you think about Japanese culture, there's so much to choose from if you're reinventing yourself in the modern era. We want to think about ourselves as industrious and as strong and as capable of becoming a great power. So famously, 1904 to 5, Japan wins this victory against Russia. And it's the first victory of an Asian or the first major modern victory of an Asian over a European power. They say, that's how you ought to imagine us and respect us. Whereas this kind of spiritual shtick is in danger of keeping us down, especially if our own population starts to believe it. Nothing worse in the early 20th century than being a pacifist, because you're going to get trodden on. So I think there's that slight parallel to be drawn, I think, between India and Japan, where if this European fantasy of a contemplative spiritual place is allowed to infect the self-understanding of Indians and Japanese, then it could be very, very dangerous. As we head into the end of the 19th and into the 20th century, are there particular examples of culture, of books, of art, of music, perhaps, that you think have been surprisingly influential or long-lasting that don't get the attention that they might otherwise? I would say probably once you're into the 20th century, it's really when you get to the 1930s and 1940s that you start to encounter writers. I think it particularly after the First World War, you start to encounter writers who are suggesting that Europe is potentially doomed without a kind of coming together of East and West. I think the shock of the First World War, in cultural terms for some people, was this realisation that you can't imagine the process of modernization or civilization as being kind of a steady upward journey, you know, if you picture it on a graph, because the bloodletting, the madness, the carnage of the First World War said to some people, there must be something deep in the European soul. Don't forget these are European Christian powers fighting each other. There must be something deeply sick in the European soul, which, as far as some of these writers were concerned, can't really be solved unless there is an influx of Asian wisdom, whether it's India or China or Japan, which can really heal or complete the European soul. So you get a series of writers who come out and start thinking about India, China and Japan in that way. One of the people I study in the book, in the final part of the book, what I do is focus on three people and look at how all this was playing out in their lives. Because 20th century is really a period, I think, of spiritual odysseys. You get people trying out different sorts of practices, different kinds of ideas, different forms of Asian wisdom to see what they might do for them. One of those people, Alan Watts, an English philosopher born in 1915, he starts to write really influential books on Asian wisdom. He's particularly interested in Zen in the 1930s and the early 1940s. And I think his 
pitch, and he's quite influenced by psychologist Carl Jung, actually. He says, look, you need to think about religion in terms of mythology. These are stories which somehow get at a deeper reality. Christianity as a mythological system doesn't work anymore. People either take it literally or they don't trust priests or they have problems with particular beliefs. Instead, in Asia, he would say, people understand how to treat a myth as a myth, how to live inside it, how to use it, these stories, the artwork that comes with it, the practices that come with them to access a deeper reality. And he says, actually, if we can learn from Asia how to do that, we can either reinvigorate Christianity or we can start practicing Zen, yoga, etc., for ourselves. And I think he really captures the imagination of a younger generation, particularly then once you move into the 1950s and the early 1960s, a generation who are you know, once you get to the counterculture, I suppose, in particular, the 50s and 60s, rebelling against their parents, rebelling against institutions. He manages to pitch Asian wisdom as being countercultural, as providing a kind of rich source for radically rethinking Western society. And I don't think he is terribly well remembered today, but he was absolutely huge in the 1950s and the 1960s, probably one of the greatest communicators of Asian wisdom to the West of the 20th century. He's such a fascinating figure because I'd heard about the countercultural movement, the importance of California to that scene, which is something he was associated with, but I'd heard nothing at all about him. It's funny, isn't it? He strikes me as being perhaps the Jordan Peterson of his day, you know, a real gift for speaking to the young. He's a really good example of a spiritual odyssey because he got interested in yoga and Zen while still at school in Britain. Then he moved to the United States, potentially, some people think, to avoid being drafted for the Second World War. There is a kind of darker side to his character, which we can come on to perhaps in a moment. Has a stint as an Episcopal priest, a Christian priest in America in the 1940s. And then he moves out to the West Coast in the 1950s and becomes an extraordinary important part of this counterculture. He really seems to have relished telling young American students on college campuses that their society was completely wrong, that they shouldn't follow along the lines of their parents, that they should embrace meditation or yoga. He was particularly good, I think, because he was quite an anxious person himself in his younger years. And I think he had genuine experiences in meditation and also in his practice of yoga, where a lot of his anxiety just fell away, because it was linked, as he would say, to a case of mistaken identity. The person you think you are, you know, this individual moving around the world who has a past and a future, etc., is, as far as he's concerned, fundamentally wrong. That there's a much deeper you, kind of self with a capital S, that if you let what you normally imagine yourself to be kind of drop away through the help of these philosophies and practices, you will contact this self who is always there, eternal, 100% connected with reality. And if you can gain even a hint of that realisation, then some of the psychological problems of modern life, anxiety, depression, attachment, worries about the future, self-consciousness, etc., all of that seems to fall away. I think he did genuinely have an experience of that now and again. But then he was an incredibly talented salesman at making that pitch to people. You know, he said, you know, it's not going to be all about therapy or having the right career or pleasing your parents. This much deeper philosophical insight, courtesy of Asian wisdom, if you can somehow get at that, everything else 
all these other problems will solve themselves. You know, maybe rather idealistic, potentially. But nevertheless, he was a great salesman, this lovely patrician English. He was on campus radio. He was on television. He had this aura about him of celebrity. People would kind of hunt him down in San Francisco, almost like a guru figure to try and get some wisdom out of him. I think for a while it really did look like Asian wisdom would be the future. But he did have a darker side, as you've alluded to. Yes. You know, we've talked about Europeans, Westerners being pretty self-referential when it comes to Asian wisdom. And I think if you look at Alan Watts, one of the things I do in the book is look at his time as a Christian priest and why it didn't work out. And what he seems to have enjoyed about Asia and Asian wisdom, in his own understanding of it, I have to stress, very, very partial understanding, was that it wasn't really interested much, this kind of wisdom, in how you behaved, in ethics or morality. It was much more about insight than it was in morality. So he could kind of behave as he wanted to, and he was sleeping with various of his students while he was still married and and had young children. Later on, he was involved in psychedelics. He was quite a pioneer in that movement. There seemed to him, Asian wisdom seemed to put no constraints on your behaviour, but it would help to kind of boost and validate whatever sort of lifestyle you were living. So for some of his Christian critics, it was a kind of having your cake and eat it type philosophy. And certainly he left a lot of disappointed people in his wake, both his wife and also his young children. There's a heartbreaking story of one of his young children who she was getting so little attention out of her father that she used to stand outside in the rain in hopes of catching a cold and thereby getting some parental attention as a result. And at one point her grandparents came over and rescued her from the UK because her father was either on radio or studying or with his friends or with some of his women folk. So I think there's always that sense, if you go beyond Alan Watts, that if you take up this or that Asian practice, yoga, meditation, I think really have been the two classic ones. Are you doing it as a way of gaining real insight into the world? Or are you shoring up the kind of life that you want to live, kind of with a bit of exotic window dressing? And I think certainly Alan Watts' critics would say he represented the second of those two tendencies. To start to draw some of these threads together in what's a complex and kind of always shifting story, are there any aspects of this that we've not talked about yet that we should? If we bring things up to date in the early 21st century, I think there's pressure probably on a historian writing across this huge span of time to say, okay, well, you know, where might we be going next? Obviously not our job to try and do a bit of crystal ballery, but nevertheless, and I think I, I am really interested in the wellness movement, which I think has, you know, really taken off in the last few years, where that fits in this story and where it might be going. And I always go back to a comment made, I've mentioned him before, Swami Vivekananda, this Indian teacher who came across a a few times to the West to teach yoga in particular, and to share this very broad and optimistic vision of Hinduism with people. He noted in 1893, They had a big world's parliament of religions in Chicago. In itself, I think, quite an important part of the story. Won't say too much about it now, but I think it's a fascinating event, not least because religions all around the world kind of punting their stuff, I suppose, in front of an audience in Chicago. And anecdotally, it's said that when you had teachers from India, China and Japan, the place would be packed. When they stopped talking and a Christian representative got up to speak, you'd have this sound of shuffling feet, people collecting their belongings and doors slamming, and they were speaking to an almost empty audience because people were interested in something new and different and exotic. But in any case, Vivekananda speaking in 1893 at this event, he suggested Westerners seemed to be interested in what he was offering of 
his particular take on Hinduism. But at the same time, they seem to be hoping for what he called the exclusive survival of their own religion. And I suspect that he wasn't talking purely about Christianity. I think he was talking about modern Western culture in general and what he made of it. In particular, some of the things he picked up was a real stress on individualism and a real stress on having things, being wealthy, being successful. And I think what he was saying was that people did want a little bit of window dressing for their lives. They did want to feel a little bit better. They didn't necessarily want to be deeply changed by whatever he might be offering. And I don't want to say for a moment that people who get involved in a serious practice of meditation or who become Buddhists or whatever it might be are not changed. Plenty of people, I think, in the West, you find examples of that. But as a culture, I just wonder whether there isn't a great deal of evidence out there that this influx of quite a, you know, a small range of Asian ideas that we seem to have latched onto have really changed our society all that much. And the wellness movement, to me, certainly the more negative sides of it, does seem to be about pampering, feeling better, having a little spa kind of holiday, all of which is lovely. But has Asia had a deep cultural impact on us? I would say not yet. And I'm not going to do the crystal ball thing, except I slightly am, which is to notice that we've been massive fans of India and Japan in the second half of the 20th century and early 21st. Not so much China after the communist revolution. Plenty of people still interested in Taoism, but a lot of that more coming in from Taiwan than from China itself. China doesn't yet have that kind of cultural soft power heft that a country like Japan so obviously has, all the way through from Zen to anime, manga, food, etc. Survey came out just a few days ago saying that Japan has the second most popular cuisine in the world now. China doesn't have that. And I do wonder whether at some point in the 21st century, if that were to change, if China were to become really effective in exerting soft power heft in the West, then maybe we are looking at last, whether we want it or not, at some aspect of Asian culture in the end having finally a deep impact on Western culture and Western self-understanding. That may be on the horizon, probably still a few decades off yet, but that would be, I think, a brand new chapter in the story if it happened. That was Christopher Harding, Senior Lecturer in Asian History at the University of Edinburgh. Christopher's book, The Light of Asia, A History of Western Fascination with the East, is out now, published by Alan Lane. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.